I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a hat trick podcast. Oh, you're I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favorite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, Nick Mohammed, actor, writer, comedian, magician, all round wonderkind. <laughs> um, just so you know, if you do hear a, a crying baby, that is our nine week old little Annie. Um, I'm not leaving her to cry on her own. My wife is downstairs, <laughs> but you might hear the odd nappy change or something like that. So I do apologise. Dear listener. Um, which book have you chosen, Nick? Uh, so I have chosen, I've gone a bit avant-garde, I've gone for the book of magic, or the pocket book of magic, I should say, which was uh, by Peter Eldin. I, I had a real think about what to choose because I knew I wanted to choose a magic book because I was so heavily influenced by watching magic on television and then getting into magic, you know, and I say that I used to watch like the Paul Daniels magic show when I was like four years old, absolutely adored it and got bitten by the magic bug from that early on really. And then every birthday, every Christmas, I would get either a little magic trick or a magic book or a little magic set. And, you know, I sort of still do that now. I'm still like a kid when it comes to magic. You know, at Christmas time, my mum and dad will still get me 10 quid or 20 quid towards a magic book or something. <laughs> I went back home a few weeks ago and this was a book on my shelf. That I thought, well, this should be the one that I take, partly because it is an old book and one that I definitely read a lot. And it's well thumbed, but also because the magic in here is brilliant. Like it's genuinely brilliant. Like there are tricks in here that I still do now, like in principle, I mean, you know, I might not do the same kind of presentation as I did back when I was a kid, but, but there are, there are, and we can talk about those in a bit, but there are, there are particular moves and particular effects in here, which are sort of stand the test of time and they're incredible. And it's just a, a brilliant, brilliant introductory book to magic, basically. We'll get onto the content in a moment, but how did you get that particular copy? Was it did you buy it yourself or was it a present? I think I did buy it myself. I think I will have been given like a book token or something, you know. Um, and this edition was published in eighty seven. Then I suspect I probably would have been about nine years old or something when I got it. And would you have read all the way through it or did you go to a first trick and try it straight away? Interest. That's a really good question because with magic books, I definitely would have had a habit of flicking through it or skipping ahead. Because, you know, if you look at the contents, you can see that the magic is sort of divided into like sort of subgenres of magic, sort of close up magic and impromptu magic, which doesn't need any preparation or yeah, coin magic, rope magic and so on. And so I probably would have jumped to the kind of thing that excited me at the time. And, you know, as a kid, I was really into card magic so there's a whole kind of chapter on card conjuring so I would have undoubtedly probably skipped ahead to that but then eventually worked my way through all the chapters sort of in an ad hoc way but that's kind of what's brilliant about magic books especially as a kid is that you can sometimes even now I'll buy a particular book because of one particular effect that I know is described in there and that the method is described in there and then I'll kind of work away sort of from that 
I mean, nowadays I try and tend to be a little bit more disciplined sometimes and will try and read cover to cover. And if there's a trick that I'm just not that interested in or, or feel like I've, I've, I've read a similar thing, I might sort of skip ahead. But no, it's, it's a funny old thing. You kind of, they then become these treasure troves, I guess, because you, you always feel like you're discovering something new. And it's usually because you, you haven't read it from cover to cover. And actually there will be pages that you've missed or skipped or chapters that you've missed or that you've come back to and sort of forgotten about. So, yeah. And who is your first audience? Did you try? them out on your family oh god yeah yeah completely yeah i mean they will have been absolutely bored to t- <laughs> friends family you know i started doing it obviously a lot in in school in the playground and my the, the church that my mum goes to you know i did a lot of shows in the church hall there and at old people's homes and nursing homes and because i am I'm, I'm still short but because i'm short and I, particularly when i was even sort of 14 15 i probably still looked about 11 I realised that I couldn't really do children's parties because I just looked like one of the audience. <laughs> so I, I, I tried to always position myself away, away from that. I found it just too intimidating. But yeah, I mean, I then, my first sort of, I guess, paid professional audiences were like when I was sort of 15, 16 at hotels and restaurants and weddings and things like that. I used to do a lot of close-up magic. Obviously, your family were um, supporting, one might even say enabling, by constantly supplying you with the magic books. Were they actually impressed and into magic or was that just your thing? No, it, it was pretty much just my thing. I mean, they weren't, yeah, you know, they were professional. Like my mum's a GP, and my dad's were like a legal professional. So, he, you know, they weren't they weren't performers in in any way. Um, my dad, in particular, was very it, it enjoyed watching magic, but you know, none of them were performers. So I think they loved that it was a hobby, and it was obviously quite unique. And we met lots of weird and wonderful people through it when I started, you know, attending magic conventions and I joined the Northern Magic Circle junior section when I was like 13, 14. And, you know, that was a big sort of eye-opening sort of time for me because I suddenly realised there were other magicians. You know, I think at first, you know, I thought not that I was the only one, but, you know, there was me and maybe anyone who I'd seen on telly. I didn't know anyone else who did magic. So everyone was an audience. And then I started going to conventions and going to clubs where there were other magicians and we could show each other stuff. And I was like, oh, this is amazing. Now now we can share this knowledge and uh, we've got our, our secret code and, and everything. It was great. Now, obviously, I love that you've chosen this book, but I wonder, did you read fiction as well? or was it- Oh, tons of fiction. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I just, the, the one book that I did read, but which is oddly very magic related anyway, and that was hugely inspiring, one of my favourite books to read, and I did consider us doing that, was um, The Novel of the Prestige by Christopher Priest, which then Christopher Nolan made the movie of. But the book, I mean, I, and I love the film, it's it's phenomenal, but the book, I would say, is even better. And, and honestly, I would encourage anyone, even if you're familiar with the film, read the book because it actually tells a slightly different story and the ending is is completely different and the ending is honestly the last few pages are just phenomenal like spine tingling stuff and obviously it's full of magic and you know I love it absolutely love it um Peter Eldon uh no slouch he has written over 200 books have you, have you got others of his wow no I've not no, because I looked on my shelf, but no, I haven't got any others. Are they other magic books? He's written some uh, fiction for children, and it's mostly nonfiction. It's mostly based around magic. Yeah, yeah. really phenomenal output. Because I presume, and I, I, I presume that Peter Eldin, I mean, obviously a magician, but because so, I did know, even at the time, that some of the tricks in here are more tricks that he has not necessarily kind of come up with himself, but he's describing either his routines or his versions of classic effects in magic, which happens a lot in magic that, you know, and especially for books which are obviously aimed at a, a children audience, that you'll take a classic and then adapt it slightly uh, to make it possibly a bit easier. And obviously, like the illustrations in here 
make it very easy to follow and so on. But no, I didn't know he'd written that many books. That's phenomenal. <laughs> it is phenomenal. Now, I have to say, there is a slight divide in the a fork in the road here. Mm-hmm. People like you who read a book like this and think, I want to try that trick. Yeah. And people like me who think this is slightly twinned with directions for furniture assembly. When I, <laughs> I start reading it, oh, and yes, I, know, yeah. I know there's a logical conclusion, but I can't quite get there. But what I, what I was really impressed by is the, his voice in the book. How, how would you describe it? Do you think he's a really good teacher? Absolutely. It's exactly how I would describe it. I feel like he has a way of, because you're right, you know, when you read, a, you know, you might read the effect and usually when a magic trick is described, it starts off with a description of the effect. So effectively what the audience will see. And then you can sometimes sit and think on that and think, okay, well, I wonder how that's done. How could that be done? Then it will say, okay, this is what you need for this effect. And this is the preparation. And that can often read like an instruction manual. And then you get to the, uh, the performance, which might then talk about sleight of hand or particular misdirection points or positioning or staging and so on so it's quite a lot to take in but I always always found his descriptions not only very easy to follow and and very easily digestible but also you never felt patronized you never felt that he was writing for 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 an audience like younger than me he was just writing for other magicians actually which sort of felt like you were kind of part again part of this this club and you know he was sharing these secrets so that you could go and share that magic with 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 everyone else and share it with an audience and um yeah you never felt talked down to and you know some of the stuff in here does get reasonably technical it's not literally not child's play you know he I, I find him very encouraging as a writer you know he would often highlight areas where there's a bit of a knack to this and you might need to um practice this a few times before you then try it out on your family members or friends or something and um uh, and as i say there are some tricks in here which in principle and this is called out of this world and we can get to it in a bit which which is a phenomenal effect and actually it's very simple. It doesn't really require any sleight of hand. It's almost self-working. But the impact on the audience can be absolutely huge. I mean, I've seen Darren Brown do effectively a version of this trick in one of his TV shows. And it's, but you know, it's in principle, it's something that a, a child could do. That's what comes across. Yeah. That sort of element of, of glee, really. And always at the end, a lovely flourish about your audience will be amazed and take your bow. And it's a real showman talking as well as somebody who delights in the nuts and bolts of how you achieve it. Com- completely. It kind of covers all bases. And, you know, there's an element to that that now, I mean, you know, it depends who you ask, like, what do people think of magicians? And it maybe depends on when you were born because it might then influence what kind of magic you're exposed to. Some people, you know, possibly rightly so, think magic can be a bit hack and a bit twee and a bit old fashioned. And, you know, there is an argument that places like the magic circle are a little bit stuck in the past and magic is still 95% male. If you look at the magic circle membership, it's, I mean, probably... 80% white male, 95% male. So it really is really behind. I mean, I don't think there's any other industry that sadly boasts those kind of numbers. I mean, when you look at equality and diversity. But on saying that, I do think some of the presentation within here are the kind of the real sort of foundations for like a good performance in kind of introducing your effect. And, you know, often he'll give like patter suggestions or joke suggestions or sort of story angles that you might use to kind of introduce the nature of the effect. And yeah, like you say, it does always end with like a flourish and a bow or, and don't forget to take your applause and and don't forget to hide this at the end so you don't give the game away or something like that so there's some fun little tongue-in-cheek moments like that as well absolutely yeah like i said there's a tone of absolute you know wanting to pass on the enjoyment of it and absolutely not keeping the secret is part of his patter really so he's he's absolutely lifting the lid Um, and also there's a list of of useful equipment which took me right back to blue peter because that was the first time i'd ever heard of dowling 
Yeah. So you have to make Dowling, friends with your yeah. hardware store. Where, where would you Dowling and rubber now? cement. Mm. Rubber cement. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't. I guess yeah. I get Ryman's for rubber cement. I don't even know what that really is. It just like so it's like a it's a it's a it's an adhesive, isn't it? That you can then restick, isn't it? I think it's I like guess a, it is, but there's all that uh, kind of stuff in magic. R- roughing fluid you might not have heard of outside of magic. That's like a I spray, hadn't. like a WD forty type thing. And there's oh yeah, you, you get into magic, you go to home base every week. That's the <laughs> yeah, exactly. The glossary at the back is wonderful about. All the time. What you need to know about magic, which absolutely debriefs you, really. It's it's extraordinary. There's one trick I noticed when I was reading through it, yes. which is about transferring your initials onto a sugar cube. Yes. And then pressing the sugar. And I thought, gosh, that, that really is, you know, it's not only, as I say, the fork in the road, it's not only learning and practicing the tricks. It's reading that and seeing how you might be able to make it work, yeah. which to me is just as impressive as the finished result. It seems extraordinarily complex. You know what? I'm, I'm looking for it in the book. Page is, is 17. It, is you, put, you put ink on your finger, don't you? Is that right? And then you yeah, hold you put, and, and yeah, it. Yeah, you be, put ink on and then, it's, and then you wet it and the sugar cube kind of, it's almost like a transfer, isn't it? Yeah, exactly that. Oh, of course, that's right. And it appears on the hand of the um, spectator. Yes. 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 I mean, that's absolutely <laughs> madness, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, some of the, it's weird. I don't, I don't think in this book, but I definitely remember, and you know, I'll have stuff at, at home in other magic books where, you know, it would recommend... Um, it might even be. In the, there's one effect where it recommends take, and I don't recommend anyone does this in this day and age, but it it was a book for children. And it, and it said, if you peel off the side of a box of matches, you know, the bit there where you'd strike the match on, apparently if you burn that, um, and then if you take what is left of the residue, if you then rub it between your hands, it creates this sort of smoke because it's a, a, like a really fine ash, basically, it kind of creates. And it can make it look like sort of smoke has appeared. Out. I mean, God knows how carcinogenic or dangerous that stuff must feel toxic it must be i mean it, i mean and imagine that, that being sort of like suggested for children to grab a box of matches burn the box of matches and then sort of use the residue in your effects you don't really see that written up nowadays there are things like that hidden gems in, in some of this literature absolutely yeah well including it hidden gems um, and there's lots of wonderful illustrations throughout this book mm. too which i really enjoyed Wait, did he illustrate it i think he did didn't he well he's put in illustrations of previous magic and magic oh, apps okay. and so- you know, and oh my goodness, I've just found an extraordinary one. May I take you to page 67? Yeah. Which is a magic trick involving um, putting shoe. stuff into your sock. Yes. Where the actually the illustration looks like one of those support things you have to put on if you've had an accident. <laughs> yes. But but it is it's a single page of instructions. But it, again, you know, I start reading it and I just it's a bit like the weather forecast, Nick. I really try and listen for my bit of the weather forecast, but it has a strangely hypnotic effect and I zone out around the southeast. <laughs> I think and that's I, absolutely fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so right zoned hand out uses about... a coin and slowly places it in the hat. As this is a final coin, <laughs> a good idea to slip the loop from your finger and let the coin slip into the hat so your hands are free for the next effect. I mean, absolutely, yeah, absolute gobbledygook if you're not if you're not following it. So. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously not. But at the end, you know, it says um, you can hold it up to the audience in a triumphant gesture of success before taking your bow I mean it absolutely gets you to that point of you're doing this which is really exciting as a child whatever you're being instructed to do if you feel at the end of it there will be praise you work a little harder yeah yeah and you know often and I think you you talk to kind of any magicians who discovered magic growing up often magic is a defense mechanism you know it's often used um, as a way of like 
either seeking attention or, 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 or some kind of defense mechanism. And, you know, not that I was bullied at school or anything, but I definitely found it as a way of kind of getting through being a youngster in the playground and avoiding bullies by just sort of quickly getting out my cards and trying to sort of, I guess, sort of misdirect them a little bit. And, um, oh, let me just show you a trick. You know, let's not, let's not go and get too caught up in this. And I think that for a lot of children, that attention can often be a really positive thing. And um, especially if it's something that you feel that you have learned yourself and that you, no one else is privy to, you know, you know, whether people can work out the secret or not at the time, it feels like you're the only person who knows this and that, you know, you do profess to have these incredible powers and yeah, you know, it makes you feel special. It's, it's very um, seductive, I think, as a child. Now. Oh, trust me, in most situations, you will definitely be the only person who knows this, absolutely, <laughs> categorically. But he also, you know, he's so re- reassuring too. And w- one of his constant mantras is you have to practice. You know, the only way to succeed is practice, practice, practice. And, sure. and he's got a whole section on managing your audience and getting your patter. And, and there's a trick with um, called the swelling egg, uh, which you use a fan. Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, And he says, if you have a particularly interesting fan, invent a story around it. And I thought, this is, this is such a sweet thing. I've, I found it really endearing. That, that's sort of little Peter, isn't it? That's little Peter with a fan thinking, I'm just, while I get this trick ready, I'm just yeah. going to tell you about this fan. And the preparation for, I remember making it once as a kid, the preparation for that, I'm not looking it up, but from memory is I think you basically get an egg, you then prick it on the bottom and the top, you then blow it so that all the stuff inside comes out. So you're left with just a hollow shell. You then soak that in vinegar. So the shell dissolves, but the, whatever the, I don't know what the technical term for the inside of the egg, but the kind of almost rubbery Mem- membrane. Mem- Brain, Perhaps, I guess, yeah. 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 And then, yeah, when you bounce that on the fan, it slowly inflates and it becomes egg-sized again. And I saw last year at the Edinburgh Festival a brilliant magician called Ben Hart, who people might have seen on, on television and stuff, do the effect. He did it and he talked about how he, he'd learnt it as a child. And he, I think, from memory, I think he had like a white rose and sort of took the petals off and put them on the fan. And, and, and I, I assume, obviously, then popped the, the egg membrane hidden within the petals on the, on the fan as well. And it, and it creates this egg. And, but then he has a great flourish at the end where, he then takes the egg and then cracks it and opens it in a glass and actually it's a real egg and you're like oh well I've got no idea now how that's done but um yeah uh, brilliant absolutely brilliant and what I mean who was the first person to do that as well I mean who Hello. thought of doing that to an egg there's something glorious about the fact that magic can only really exist if someone else sees it you know you can practice all you like but you've got to have at least one person yeah. who sees what you do. Oh, completely. I mean, and, and and there's a danger to sometimes magic literature or ma- new magic effects that come out are almost targeted for magicians and they just become toys that kind of get fussed over during magic conventions, but never really see the light of day. They don't really make much sense to anyone else because maybe methodically they're really interesting, but you would never share that with an audience member. And sometimes magicians, myself included, can get so into the method behind it, but actually the audience are never privy to that. And actually all the audience care about is the effect and it and it and it really goes to show that actually yeah the magician doesn't exist without an audience actually like you need the sort of the duo dynamic between the two for magic to play and, and to work at its best the likes of paul daniels i think always had incredible rapport with audience members and i thought he was absolutely terrific like his body of work is phenomenal yeah you've said that he was one of your heroes yeah he absolutely yeah he really really was and you know i think i don't know if everyone took to him but i always thought he was very kind generous i thought he was phenomenal for magic and not just in this country but um he put 
magic on the map for me, certainly. And weirdly enough, a little sidebar is that my dad worked in visual effects at the BBC and one of the ah, shows he cool. worked on was Paul Daniels. Was it? Wow. So my mum and dad used to go to his Christmas party. Oh, um, that's pretty cool. A little, little bit of cachet next yeah. day. Just a little. Yeah, I bet. Just a little. I bet. That's amazing. Even if you're involved in I mean, I, I was once... Um, Made the Zigzag Girl by Paul Keith. Oh, yeah. From Blue Peter. He's a brilliant magic consultant, designer and everything, yeah. I think he was on all the Harry Potters, wasn't he? Probably. Yeah, he's done, I mean, he's done everything. He must have been about 12, 13 when he was wow. doing this. But even then, he was completely in control of it, mm-hmm. completely. And although I was party to the trick, sure. when I see it done, I'm still impressed. So there's yeah. something about the audience participation is that we are willing it to be magic. Yes. Well, I think there is, there is a, and you know, it's part of the reason why I think it's so alluring as a child. When I think magic is done well as an audience member, if you see magic done well, it does transport you to a time when anything is possible. And that is basically childhood when you're just innocent. You don't, you're not cynical in any way. The laws of kind of nature don't quite make sense and you don't, you sort of just accept them, but you could almost accept anything. So if you go to see a show and then something flies you're like it fills you with this sense of wonder and it's because it just transports you back to that time or maybe that and you know if you did analyze it if you sit down as an adult and think well I'm sure it's on strings or there's someone at back doing this or it's lit in a particular way or someone's lifting it from behind and we can't see you know you could obviously probably break it down but for that moment that moment of wonder that kind of goes straight to the heart I think and takes you right back to childhood and that's what I love about it you know that's an incredible feeling. And did you ever have any sort of career plan, Nick? Was there was there a little Not ladder really. that you were climbing? Um, <clears throat> I mean, there was prior to me getting into this industry. I mean, when I when I graduated, so I went to Durham and did geophysics, and then started doing a PhD at Cambridge in geophysics still. But then once I kind of got bitten by the comedy book, it was really odd. I just had this absolute epiphany of like, I remember leaving the Bullard Laboratories where I was studying my PhD because I'd had to request time off from my supervisor to be able to go and do like the Edinburgh Festival and to do like the tour because I was in the Footlights um, sketch group at the time and which he had granted reluctantly, but granted, and he was very understanding about it. And I remember leaving at the end of July to then head up to Edinburgh, looking back at the Bullard Laboratories and thinking, I'm never coming back. I'm never going to come back. And I did have to come back because I had to, I, and I, I did, I got back from the tour and I said to my supervisor, I said, I want to quit. I want to pursue comedy. And he was like, mm, okay. <laughs> and, uh, so I, I cut it short by a year. So I did an MPhil in the end. So I did do some research and wrote up a thesis and so on. But um, I obviously didn't get the full PhD. <laughs> and I heard that then a postdoc, I think, finished off the work within like weeks or something. It would have taken me a year, but they, they were able to do it in weeks. And obviously, I say I never looked back. I obviously then didn't work for years and had no guarantees that, and you know, I couldn't, didn't earn a penny from it. But, you know, I moved to London. I actually then started working at Morgan Stanley, the bank. So I was working there during the day, but then gigging a lot in the evening. And then I just gigged and gigged and gigged, you know, for years until uh, I got signed by an agent and and had some interest from Radio 4. Even though I think my career has been quite a slow burn, actually. I'm really glad it has been because I've got to try lots of different things. And um, it's meant that now Mr. Swallow is sort of 
at the forefront of what I do at the moment. You know, I'm on a tour of Mr. Swallow and, you know, I'm pitching Mr. Swallow TV stuff. And I, it's been around for so long, but it's nice to have sat with that character for so long that I just know him and I know what makes an audience laugh because I've sort of been there in front of audiences across the country now to see what works. And I know and I know it does. And so there was never really a plan apart from to just try and work hard and put best foot forward and do as much as I can and, you know, just, just keep on at it. I think I was blindly optimistic as well. I think, I think you sort of have to be don't you if you do any profession where the reaction to it is not oh how lovely but you know it's really hard you know you have to carry on yeah um i can see that through the book paul eldin leads you onto bigger stages literally i mean as you get mm-hmm. towards the end of the book he's suggesting yeah, that for this so trick on, you're going to need curtains and an assistant yes. i mean at one point he says you know if you have a well-trained dog you could persuade <laughs> it to be your assistant that, thought, does he does yes and actually there are very sweet pictures of him and some children with very very outdated hairstyles yes, and very neatly dressed as well but there is <laughs> as you say that sense of childish wonder in it which mm. I suppose is the bit that however sophisticated the trick, however mind-bending, we still go to yeah. that place where we have no other recourse. We, all we are is in the presence of that magic. That's it. We yeah, can't, we can't decipher and that, it and, 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 and that's the kind of contract that I think you sign when you go and see a magic show, you know, especially if you've chosen to go and see a, you know, a magic show or magic performance, is that you enter into the spirit of it, knowing that deep down you know you are being tricked, you are being fooled, and that there will be... A, a, a rational sort of or mechanical methodology behind it, but you are just willing to suspend that disbelief in that moment and just accept it for, for what it is and be entertained in that way. What's, what sort of tricks are your favourites? Because obviously he, he breaks it down, as you say, yeah. into sections, you know, coins, ropes, scarves, yeah. whatever. Did you go to one section? Well, you said you like card tricks, but I, did I st- you- And I still like cards. It's partly because I just it's so easy to carry a deck of cards as well. So it was easy to practice card tricks because I could just take them anywhere and, you know, I could fiddle with a deck of cards whilst watching telly. You could just always have them on you. And, you know, even now, I'm literally in my rucksack to my side, I've got a deck of cards just in case anyone asks to see something. I try not to inflict it on people if they don't ask. But card magic was absolutely a go-to. But close-up magic in general, I, mean, I did a bit of everything. I mean, it was a real variety show. I mean, one thing that I didn't certainly at the time when I was probably in my mid teens, there was a real fashion for magic to be silent and done to music. So it was manipulations, it's car manipulations, producing doves and silk handkerchiefs and all kinds of things. And particularly if you went to magic competitions, which I did and competed in them, you know, out of 10 people, I'd be the only patter magician there. You know, there'd be hardly any, it was really rare for there to be a magician that spoke. Now this is before close up was actually then quite a popular thing. Close-up was sort of gathering momentum in like the 90s, I think. But there weren't that many close-up magicians, oddly. There was a lot of stage magicians, but they were all more kind of cruise ship sort of style entertainers and very old-fashioned, like tops and tails and very well-dressed and or, or illusionists. But yeah, very few pattern magicians, which is odd because... Paul Daniels was a pattern magician and he was the most inspiring sort of UK magician at that time. So, yeah, so I did a lot of stage stuff, but a bit of everything. You know, I did a bit of mentalism, a bit of escapology, which is sort of what I do now. You know, I did a show about Houdini, which had some escapology in. And I also did, um, you know, I've done, you know, the card memorization and stuff like that that I've done on 8 out of 10 Cats Test Countdown. You know, that sort of stems back to old sort of mentalism books that I've read and things. So, yeah, yeah, a bit of everything. And, and do you like the French magician who used to walk around with his hand in his pockets to practice like that sounds like a good a excuse dodgy. yes as, a, it does, as an observer <laughs> what are you doing oh i'm just fiddling <laughs> with my, slight my deck of playing yeah. cards <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> look at look at that one. That, the, have... incredible, the incredible sword box. I just I just found that on that page. Yes. Yes, yes. Isn't it? Effectively, yes. what you're looking at is a cardboard box, which has had sort of stars and moons and little nice patterns on the outside. But on the inside, there is someone sat in a, I guess what can only be described as a stress position. <laughs> and then there are various bamboo canes sort of thrust in in sort of weird directions such that they don't fortunately go through the audience member or the assistant it must be an assistant um inside this box um and they're sort of just sort of skirting around the knees and the elbows and everything but it looks uh like phenomenally uncomfortable and i don't know how you'd go about rehearsing that i i would love to do that effect but i've never i've never plucked up the courage what i love as well is is above the box is a little um sign saying audience and an arrow pointing yeah just so you know that the audience can't see right into the box and see how it's done (laughs) yeah yeah little tips like that are quite quite useful thank you peter yes marvelous (laughs) i never tried that one People often ask me what my regular London pub is, but that assumes there's a pub I can easily return to, so please stop asking that. London Pub Reviews, written by Paul Ewan and featuring Tim Key. A hat-trick podcast. Did you save my seat? Why? I'm at a completely different pub now, with different seats. Catch up. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Drinking with dignity. Yes, sir. Yes, madam. That's me all over. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And I have to ask you, Nick, Mr. Swallow, how, mm. how was he born? What's his genesis? So his genesis was he... Or she, I mean, it's based on a school teacher and she was my English teacher when I was, I think, in year nine. And I never named her. <laughs> uh, bless her, has <laughs> passed, passed away a few years ago and never never knew about Mr. Swallow. But she spoke like that and she had this voice and she just, she had this sort of attitude like we had all sort of heckled her and that, or that she was always on the defensive. It was really odd. And she was absolutely bonkers. And, you know, we were meant to be, you know, she sometimes like just walk in, to the lesson, like, right, we're going to have a debate about capital punishment. And we're like, well, why Why are we doing, why aren't we, we're meant to be doing Merchant of Venice, you know, what are we doing? And so, you know, she was absolutely off a rocker. And, we, and not just me, but a few of us used to do that voice because we found it funny in the playground. And then eventually, you know, I went to university and I started getting into comedy and and I'd write sketches and, you know, do bits of kind of character stand-up. And I found myself sort of doing this voice sometimes and it, and it made things, or at least to me, it made things sort of 10% funny. <laughs> and so it sort of started off doing that. And then when I went to the Edinburgh Festival, 
and you know, I was doing multi-character shows and then Mr. Swallow would become part of that. And then eventually, I think 2010, goodness me, 13 years ago, it was the first hour that I did solely as Mr. Swallow with no change in character. And you could see the audience just being like, oh my God, is it this for an hour? Not me, it's <laughs> joyful. Oh, thank you. But it's but I love it. And it's quite good is because now he, he is sort of, I can now start to do magic through him, which is great because it sort of becomes a persona with which I can sort of try magic out. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't matter because he's got the personality to deal with it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I, I saw the Christmas show actually. Oh, Christmas point you. Yes. Oh, thank yes. you for coming to that. At one point you were balanced so high above the audience mm. with no ropes or wires that mm. I feared for your safety. Yes, I we feared. all feared for my safety during that yeah. one, I think. <laughs> did it go wrong every night? It was fine the night I was there. It, it was fine. When I did the Houdini show, which was a few years prior to that, same character, same kind of setup, but, you know, he's meant to be doing the water tank escape at the end. That did once go wrong, actually. And we had an illusionist. We had a consultant on that, a brilliant guy called Danny Hunt, who did, to be fair, say to us, he said, just so you know, you're probably doing about 7,500 shows of this. Obviously, we'll rehearse and we'll rehearse and rehearse, but it will go wrong one night. And you have to accept that that will happen. And he was right, true to his word, statistically. And I had to be got out without giving the method away. There is a point when I have to breathe, um, but we hide it from the audience. But I couldn't do the thing that then would allow me to to, to get the breath, the, the kind of secret breath to allow me to sort of stay under for long. So I'd already been under for about a minute. And the cast know, because it's also choreographed, even the struggling is obviously choreographed to give it theatre, but so that they know exactly what's going on. But they had to get me out and we had to reveal part of the mechanics of it and um, get me out. And then we had to just make an announcement at the end of the show saying, please don't give that away. That wasn't meant to happen. And uh, that's not how the show usually ends. But the, 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 the scariest thing was actually getting back in the tank the next day for the next show because I thought, oh God, I hope it doesn't happen again. Because <laughs> then you start worrying. I bet there's a part of the audience that thought that was planned. Yes, well, I think so. That's why we actually thought we should make an announcement. I came out of character and and just got the mic and addressed it because partly to preserve some of the secrecy, but also just to, because we were all a bit, we were all a bit sort of frazzled by it. And we just wanted the audience, because I think some of the audience were a bit like, oh, we're we're a bit discombobulated by what's just happened there. And it had been a really fun show up to that point, actually. (laughs) So I was like, oh, what a shame. But, um, But yeah, the next day was the tricky thing. What did you think when you first got the scripts for um, Ted Lasso? What were your first impressions? My first impressions were it's brilliant. I went up for the part of Higgins, first of all, which Jeremy Swift ended up getting. Brilliant Jeremy. So I went up for that part in like May of 2019, I think it was. Didn't get it. Thought nothing of it. Started shooting Intelligence, which is a show that I write as well. So I was kind of heavily immersed in that. And then out of the blue, got a call saying, oh, do you mind coming in and auditioning for Nate? And I said, no, <laughs> I said, no, I can't because I'm filming Intelligence and I, it'll just be too, I, I just, I won't have time to prepare and I don't want to go in and do a bad audition. And they were like, oh, well, can you do it? Can you do a self-tape? And I hurried together this self-tape in a, literally in the lunch break. I I have been told since then that I was meant to have submitted three scenes and I only submitted one, which must have looked so arrogant at the time. And then got offered it and then slightly was like, oh, I just don't know, you know, intelligence is about this sort of eccentric American guy who comes over to a British institution and I kind of befriend him and I'm sort of his subordinate. And is that in concept similar to what Ted Lasso is? Or, you know, that's intelligence set up GCHQ and obviously very different shows, like very different shows. And then I got this wonderful call from Jason and Bill Lawrence saying, look, just so you know, this is where this character goes because that wasn't clear from what I've been, you know, I'd just seen the first three episodes script 
Oh, you wouldn't know from that, no? No, not at all, no, no. And they absolutely were so sweet and told me all the detail of where the character goes and it's going to go on this journey. I was like, I'm absolutely in. And goodness me, I've never looked back. I mean, what a joyful show. I mean, I'm so grateful to be a part of it. It is extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's it's one of the few shows I can think of where, first of all, obviously, the characters, although they have conflict, they have no agenda. Mm. And some of the scenes are so much longer than you would find in any other similar. So, you know, they they allow real depth within a scene. Quite a lot happens. And normally the tendency is now to cut or come back to it. And, you know, there there is great trust of obviously the Mm. scripts and all of you. Mm that the, the audience, and of course they are, are, are taken along because it does explore, you know, if everybody hasn't watched it, it explores not just the concept of a failing football club, but it also explores mental health, it explores mm-hmm. racism and homophobia. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. the, the breadth is, well, it's like life, actually. Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. life. But it doesn't rush through those things. No, so the no. show itself doesn't have that agenda either. No, completely. And I think if anything, the episodes have got, you know, I think it started off, they were probably around the half hour mark, but that's one of the joys of streaming. I think, you know, they're now an hour, some of the episodes. Yeah. I mean, And yeah, they absolutely, they allow for it. It's not about football, really. You know, it's about following the lives of these very different people who are all in search of sort of just sort of understanding who they are. And obviously my character's taking a slight turn for the worse. But there's a real truth to it. I think there's a real truth in their storytelling as well. I mean, it's such a nice cast and crew. I mean, it really is. It really is. It looks like you will get on. So that's that's nice. Yeah. But everybody has phenomenal other talents. And I'm, well, like you know, Hannah, I'm, kind, Hannah of ho- I'm kind of hoping for the musical. I yeah. hope there is a Ted Lasso <laughs> yeah. musical. Brett. Such an amazing stand-up. I mean, also, like, the range of... I don't think... I think 70% of the cast of Ted Lasso are also doing different accents, not their natural accent as well, which yeah. I sort of forget. I sometimes forget. And then we meet up and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you don't sound like... <laughs> Everyone's doing an accent. There it's amazing. Is. Is, there any, is there any hope of a musical, do you think? So I, I mean, you know, both Jason and Brendan in particular, huge musical fans. I wonder if Joe Kelly's a musical fan. I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, you know, they're not shy when they kind of come to their musical theatre references or kind of film references and things like that. And it wouldn't, I mean, I very much doubt they would do a musical version of it. But I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, there's some charity song that kind of emerges I don't know something like that I can imagine okay being right well I think street. we just dropped a gauntlet there if anyone wants to pick it up <laughs> it would be very satisfying and you're writing children's books as well so you, well I've written two yeah two of the young magicians series I guess there might be another one at some point when I kind of get time but um yes the first one was the young magicians and the thieves almanac and then the next one was the young magicians and the 24-hour telepathy plot particularly the first book it's weirdly the thing I'm most proud of. And I and I don't mean that in a disparaging way about because it's a children's book or anything like that. I just more mean it because it took me so long. like, And it was really difficult. Like it took ages and ages. It took probably about three years. And, you know, I've never really written prose before. And, and it kind of happened on a bit of a whim, actually. It, it so happened that someone from the Penguin Random House publishing children's department had come to see a Mr. Swallow show. I think um, uh, the Dracula musical that I put on in Edinburgh in 2014 and said, oh, do you want to have a coffee at some point? I do. And if you ever got a children's idea, I feel that your sense of humour might be fun for children. And I thought, oh yeah. And then I, I think there was three ideas that I sort of then thought, oh, I wonder if this would make a good children's book. And then it very kind of quickly became, well, I'm so passionate about magic and grew up with magic that that would be a really good story to tell and that I could, there's a sense of authenticity there. And, um, but yeah, 
then obviously all the hard work, but I, I crammed and crammed. I've never worked so hard on something, I don't think. And, um, and I just love that it exists as a thing and it can't, I, you know, I don't know how successful it was. I've never made any money from it ever, but I, I love it. And I love that it's there and it's a thing and it can never change. Well, it'll also always be around and there'll yeah. always be more children to read it. Do your children like magic? Uh, yeah, Finn in particular is, is, is I think, going to get into it like in a proper way. So we did, we did this little thing. It hasn't been on telly yet, but um, so he's very good. He's got an incredible memory. It's like a photographic memory. I think it's got an eidetic memory where you can sort of see things and then recall them relatively quickly. Uh, and I can do a lot of memory sort of stunts and things like that, but he is really like, he's the real deal almost. And um, he basically memorized a set of flash, like animal flashcards. Like this is about two years ago. Something he just could memorize the order of these different how, animals. How old is he then? He's like seven now, but he was five at the time when he started getting into it. So in the, in the next Catster's countdown that I appear on as Mr. Swallow, I, as one of my little dictionary corner sections, I bring him on as Master Swallow. And he just does this genuine memory demonstration where I'm, I'm like talking to him like this and sort of having a go at him. <laughs> but he's doing this incredible memory display where basically the audience have shuffled this, 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 um, like a pack of cards, but it's the, all different animals. And they're read out. I read them out to him and go through about, I think we do 60, I think. And I read them out to him and then he recounts them in reverse order. And it's phenomenal. And and I can't, and it's one of the most sort of proud moments as a dad, but also one of the most stressful moments because I was sort of trying to be in character, trying to be a dad. Also, I was like, I can't believe you're doing this in front of 200 people in a live audience with cameras. But he just rose to the challenge. I mean, he just, and he wanted to do it, by the way, because he'd seen me do stuff. Yeah, yeah, He's sure. like, oh, can I do that? Because I can do it. And I was like, well, I can put it to the producers. <laughs> and they were like, okay. And then it was really odd because obviously they've never had a kid on Cats' Counter because it's so rude. Because <laughs> there's so much bad language. And, you know, who knows what Jimmy Carr's going to say next. And so they had to put in so many things in place. But, and the producers were quite sort of not stressed about it, but quite, oh, crikey, I hope this works. Because, you know, we've put kind of a lot of effort into this and, you know, who knows? And, you know, is he just going to crumble on the day? And I, and part of me was like, I sort of don't know because he's that a kid. Really, I'm feeling that he stress. He was phenomenal. Yeah. I could I could not believe it. Honestly, when it comes out, watch it. Cause I mean, I haven't seen the footage yet, but on the night, I mean, he just blew the roof off. It was sort of phenomenal. Oh. I don't know how he managed to keep his cool. Thank you so much. What a joyful choice. Thanks so much for having me, Janet. What a lovely chat. So nice to delve back into this book as well. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at TwiceUponAPod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat-trick podcast.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.